What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This week of Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I get to steer the ship today, joined by Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer at Think Progress in D.C., and Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State University. This week, we're going to discuss some sports stories we think deserve more attention, including women's bobsledding and softball. And in that vein, Amira interviews volleyball player Simone Lee. Then we'll reflect on the plight of Black quarterbacks, burn the things that most infuriated us this week, and celebrate some badass women who accomplished some astonishing things. Okay, let's get to it. So, there's a spotlight, a giant spotlight on the major sports in the U.S., football, basketball, baseball, followed by the fourth sport, whether it's hockey, soccer, NASCAR, occasionally tennis. But there are dozens of other sports cultures that thrive, both in the U.S. and internationally. So we want to explore those a bit today. Amira, when we talk about sports coverage or sports that are compelling, but you don't get quite the same coverage, what comes to mind for you? Well, this week, what came to mind was bobsledding. And I won't lie, the reason it came to mind is because this amazing story of the Nigerian women's bobsled team, which feels straight out of Cool Runnings. If anybody remembers, Cool Runnings is the movie based on the Jamaican bobsled team that has this very kind of similar narrative arc. You're from a place that doesn't really get snow or at snow at all, and yet you're qualifying for the Winter Olympics in a sport that is very cold and on ice. But bobsledding itself is wicked cool, and I don't think I've ever stopped to appreciate just how cool it is. You're flying down ice at like 80, 90 miles per hour. It's like NASCAR meets like speed skating meets track and field. (laughs) Who can't appreciate that? So it's very cool to kind of be reinvigorated this, not only with the Winter Olympics coming up, but with this wonderful story of these three women who has a track and field background, just like the Jamaican men's bobsled team that the movie Cool Runnings is based off of. And as we see that track and field background comes in handy for the push-off. See, I don't even know the terminology. It's probably not called the push-off. But when they're running at the beginning of the hill and they jump in the bobsled and They're the first Nigerian team to make the Olympic Games, first representation of their country. It's going to be really fun to watch them compete in February. And just I'm totally into watching bobsled for the upcoming Olympics in general now. Yeah, that was really exciting this week. It was super cool. Linz, what do you think about bobsledding? 
So I actually love bobsledding. <laughs> so, this is, uh, so I have a confession that I, not a confession, but just a little background about me is that uh, four years ago during the Sochi Olympics, I just did, I followed them and wrote columns on pretty much every sport there for Bleacher Report when I was freelancing for Bleacher Report at the time. So they contracted me for the Olympics to basically just switch my schedule to Sochi time and watch all of the sports and write things about it, which was just fantastic. Like that was a great way to spend a couple of months of my life. But anyways, but one of the sports like I got the most fascinated with was like bobsled. And a lot of that is because these women are super badasses. Like they just are incredible. And, you know, you don't think a lot about Bobsled isn't necessarily the sport that you comes to mind first when you think of like the fight for gender equality in sports. But there's actually a lot of push going on there. No pun intended for women to get more opportunities. So right now, women get to ride what is called the monobob, so the one person. And then there's also the the technical name is the two man woman bobsled. So um (laughs) that you've got the two push athletes and then the the driver but women don't get to drive the four man bobsled Ooh. which is the four push athletes so that's still not an event open to women at all and women actually just were able to sled and bobsled in the Olympics starting in 2002 Jeez. so that's pretty recent and after last Olympics, Elena Myers and Myers slash Taylor, excuse me, Elena Myers Taylor and Kayla Humphrey. So they are the two of the best female bobsleds steers in the world. Kaylee is Canadian and Elena is in the U is American and they're constantly fighting out for the top of the podium. But a couple a few winters ago, I think it was winter 2014, both of them for the very first time st- piloted a four-man bobsled in World Cup races. And they actually did this with men as the push athletes, since there still wasn't an opportunity for the women to have a four-man event to themselves. And so I covered that. And that was a really, it was pretty inspiring to watch like these, you know, them, them really just trying to break barriers and breaking barriers by saying, okay, you won't give us our own event. What if we, these world-class athletes go and just use the male push athletes? So I'm hoping that if, that pushes like that are going to continue to open up more opportunities for bobsled. But that won't be at this Olympics, unfortunately. But we're, we can definitely root on Elena and Kaylee and all the other women. And look, there's also a lot of great storylines in the United States and I, honestly, all the countries, especially, I mean, you see this in Nigeria, where a lot of former track and field athletes then switch to bobsled to kind of extend their athletic careers a little bit because of the running. And Lolo Jones, is who's a figure I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of, whose Olympic disappointments are no secret in the track and field and hurdles <laughs> realm, she is trying to get back onto the Olympic bobsled team once again as a push athlete. So this could be her final chance. She hasn't officially made the team yet, but she's kind of, she she gave up this last track and field season to stay at her bobsled push athlete weight. And she's, you know, trying to go for it to get a chance at another medal. So that's another storyline to watch over the next few months. I just, I have to admit that I watch bobsledding between closed fingers. Like I peer (laughs) through. It's so fast. It's so fast. And they're just pummeling through ice. 
icy terrain. Anyway, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to talk about it. I'm such a chicken. I'm going to talk about <laughs> a sport that gets some attention. It's not that it gets no attention, but I don't think it gets enough attention. And it's on the verge of its 130th anniversary on this Thanksgiving Day. It was founded in 1887, and it is softball. And softball, I had no idea, but was actually formed for men. It yep. was the idea of indoor baseball. Yep. I had no idea. I didn't either. I didn't either. I'm sure you knew Amira. Come on. Amira's hiding. No need to rub it in. I know. I know. She's just she's the strong silent one there. Like, like I'm not gonna publicly shame them. Okay, so Amira knew. But most I didn't know. Anyway. And so it turns out that it was so popular among girls that it already Wrigley, you know, the guy who owned the, the Cubs. Established an all-American girls softball league in 1943. So it has these like really deep roots, even though it wasn't founded for women. It has these really, really deep roots in in women's women athlete athletic communities. And right now there's a professional league for women. It's called the National Pro Fast Pitch or the NPF. It has six teams. And in it, like in anticipation, softball is coming back to the Olympics in 2020. So there's a kind of renewed energy around the sport. And one of the things that they just announced a couple months ago is that they, the sixth team is based in China. Mm. So it's a U.S. league, but it's called the Beijing Shugong Eagles. It's most almost entirely rostered by China's national softball team. I don't think roster is a verb, <laughs> but I like <laughs> made it one. Go with it. We're yeah. making it work. Yeah, we're making it work. So it's mostly rostered by, by the China national softball team. And half of their schedule is in the U.S. and the other they're they're trying to to bring to China. So so that's pretty amazing and cool. And the other teams, just like for familiarity, Akron Racers, Chicago Bandits, Texas Charge, the USSSA Pride, which is based in Florida, and the, my favorite name, the Houston Scrapyard Dogs. <laughs> Now that and is there's badass. A new doc- that is badass. I know. That's like, wow, uh, dogs. It just lends itself to so many kinds of cool things. There's a new documentary out about the Akron Racers, and it's pretty cool. It shows their general manager, Joey Arrieta, who's a very well-known former player, cleaning up the stadium, working 80 hours a week, doing anything kind of, you, you know, to keep it going. And just, I'm just going to end my my softball pitch <laughs> by saying it's it's, it's it's really exciting and I'm gonna I'm gonna add to the show notes links to the last championship to the 2017 final game playoff game because it's so exciting do you know that the the strongest women pitchers I mean, okay Amira probably does know this but they throw up to 70 miles per hour like that way, that crazy way, that hard way. So anyway, I think it's pretty exceptional. Amira, come on, drop some knowledge on softball. I have a funny here. softball team name. So the black women I write about who play in the Negro Leagues in the 50s also came from softball route. One of them did, and she played in Philadelphia. And her team name in Philadelphia was the North Philadelphia Honey Drippers. <laughs> oh my god this <laughs> <is> rather <laughs> unfortunate name for a team but they were very very good were they they were they were like undefeated and and they had all these profiles in the newspapers at the time about how they were beating all the competition so they played against white women and smoked them and it was no surprise then when she kind of made the leap to the negro leagues but i think it does make this really interesting point 
so often the reason why I knew this fact about softball, right, is because a lot of times when girls and women are pushing to get into baseball, the the kind of rebuke of that is to say, oh, no, you have softball. And one of the things that will happen is people will point out, well, actually, softball and baseball are two different sports, right? It's not just that they're using a bigger ball, but they actually have differences within them. And I think Mm -hmm. One thing that does get lost in that discussion, however, is that softball ends up kind of being pushed to the side. Like, oh, yeah, it it was made to be this kind of softer game that women were pushed into instead of schools funding equal baseball programs for them or letting them on baseball teams. They've kind of built up softball in this way. But even if those kind of sexist roots of why women and girls have been pushed into softball are true... I think it's really important to also say that softball is a kick-ass sport and the people who play it are really good. As you said, you know, these pitchers are throwing 70 miles per hour and people are having a really good time. It's it's a really great game to watch. Yeah, I'm excited. So we'll be sure to cover the season as it starts this spring. So Bernard Aldown will be back. We'll be back to softball. Lindsay, what do you want us to pay more attention to? Well, I think that every time the Winter Olympics come around or any either Olympics, I there are all these sports that we just pay attention to for like this two weeks of the year. And I'm always disappointed that I don't go more out of my way to follow these sports year round because, of course, these athletes compete a lot more than two weeks a year. And one of those things is short track speed skating, which I think is the most exhilarating sport to watch. There's probably no sport where I hold my breath the entire time like I do with short track. So I'm very excited for the Olympics. I think ever since J.R. Selsky uh, a few years ago had that fall and crash in, I think it was an Olympic warm-up event or Olympic trials, perhaps. It was either his skate or another skate from someone literally just dug into his leg because those skates are so sharp and they're all so close to each other. And I don't oh. know how more people don't die, like always, during oh. in this sport. Like those skates are so, so sharp. They're so sharp oh. and they're all right there together. But it's I love watching short track because it is definitely a sport where it is heartbreaking because it's not always the sport that the best person wins because there are so many collisions and there's so many unpredictable things in the course of the race. So I don't know how you become like a dominant athlete in it, like Apollo Ono oh, <laughs> or, oh, you know. Oh, no. I still have a crush on him. I'm not sure. (laughs) This is the space, Amira. This is is a safe space. I'm only judging you a little bit. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I just just have no idea. And I just – it's just – I don't understand many sports. I'm not an athletic person. Everyone who knows me knows this. But that is just one of those sports, like, I can't even begin to comprehend why you would want to do that. <laughs> no, me neither. Me neither when I watch it. Me neither. It's absolutely terrifying. This week, Amira sat down with volleyball player Simone Lee. Amira? Yes, women's volleyball is something that we also should highlight as a sport that deserves more coverage. If you've ever been to a volleyball game, it is a packed gym. It is people diving everywhere. That clip that went viral two weeks ago of the amazing dig that a girl had hurdling her own player to hit the ball. It's a fascinating sport. And so that led me to be in touch with Simone Lee, who's the co-captain of the number one ranked Penn State women's volleyball team as they begin their postseason push. 
So here is my conversation with Simone. So we are joined today by Simone Lee, who is a senior volleyball player here at Penn State. She's a broadcast journalism major and a minor in African-American studies. She's also the co-captain of the number one ranked Penn State's women's volleyball team, who's on a roll with a 16-match win streak. Was that 17 as the last night? 17-match win streak, the nation's best record in a number one ranking in the American Volleyball Coaches Association poll for the past five weeks, including a unanimous number one spot this week. Lee was a 2016 AVCA first team All-American, a unanimous All-Big Ten selection, earned Big Ten Player of the Week, and ESPNW's National Player of the Week last year. This year, Simone is leading the team with 358 kills, second in total digs. She was recently named Defensive Player of the Week. Welcome, Simone. Hi, how are you? So glad to have you. Thank you. That is a really accomplished resume. So for everybody who doesn't know, this week we're going to be talking a little bit about women's college volleyball, which is ending its regular season in the next few weeks and getting ready for their postseason tournament. Now, Simone, how did you start playing volleyball? I actually started playing volleyball. It's kind of funny. So my sister has always played volleyball, and I've always went to her practices. I used to play basketball, and I went to one of her practices, and there wasn't enough girls on one of their lower-ranked teams, and they were like, well, Simone, you're tall, and you're always here, so you might as well join. So that's what it happened, and like the rest is history. I've always enjoyed playing volleyball since. That's awesome. Now, volleyball is a sport that I feel like people don't know enough about. Yeah, yeah. And I, when my daughter, we went to your game last night, night and I said we're gonna see a volleyball game she's like but there's not sand where is there a beach (laughs) and I said no 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 there's beach volleyball and then there's volleyball volleyball so what you know how do you deal with playing in a sport that you feel like needs to be more visible I guess I like kind of put it on myself and like think that it's it's up to people who play the sport to educate people who don't know a lot about the sport. And I think it's a growing sport for sure. There's a lot more girls, even in Pennsylvania alone, like that want to play volleyball. We have so many girls that always come to our camps here. And every time I go back home when I'm in Wisconsin, I always hear like, oh, my daughter just started volleyball. Like she's been watching so-and-so play for a number of years and she's always wanted to join. So now like here we are. And I, I just think it's like, it's just taking it upon yourself to make sure that like everyone knows that this is a really fun sport. And even though it might not be in the limelight all the time, like it's getting more national recognition. And I mean, our women's and men's team for volleyball indoor are just absolutely incredible. I mean, they, they're crushing it in the Olympics. There are a lot of the girls who are playing now from Penn state as alumni are overseas playing professionally. And so I just think it's one of those things that if you follow it, you'll know so much more about it. But if you don't learning and educating yourself on like a, for, a sport that I think is really fun, it's just even better. And I will say it's it's really fun to watch. And just what two weeks ago we had that trending video of the girl with that amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But also playing here at Penn State seems to be a particular fun environment to play. I mean, you have a band and they were lit last night, let me yeah. tell you. <laughs> and it seems like this is a school with a storied athletic history. How did you choose to play at Penn State and what is it like to play here? I've always been super competitive and I always want to win. And I know that Penn State has a winning tradition. So I didn't think that going to, to any other school would have been applicable or even <laughs> even possible for me. I'm, I'm very competitive. And I think that just knowing that there's so many good players coming into Penn State, not only as people themselves, but as volleyball players, like it makes it 
makes me want to be just as good as them. And like, I always see so many of the alumni go on to do so many great things that it makes me aspire to do the same. And I think that that's something that coach is really big on. He's not only wanting to mold you into a better player, but mold you into a better person. And I think that's something that I've learned, especially in my fourth year here at Penn State. Yeah, it's really great, you know, to see the student section packed and to see everybody kind of coming in for women's athletics and the band. Like, is it a dedicated volleyball band? The blue band? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're great. They're absolutely wonderful. And I just think that there's so many fun times that we've had just like dancing to all their music and they get so like we're so close with them. I want to say like they're they're so cool and they're so all about Penn State volleyball and that's something that a lot of people don't experience because they always bring a lot of schools bring like their football band to volleyball games so they might not be as into it but like our blue band like they are 100% volleyball fans and it's just it's just so cool to see that's great so mentioning volleyball is there a kind of volleyball culture are there traditions within volleyball large kind of college volleyball traditions or is there any kind of routines that the public would not know about by seeing like is I suppose I mean there's this one at least for us we every year the incoming freshmen we ask them to do skits Mm -hmm. so something like to get us going to get us excited before every match Mm -hmm. and it's always funny because during our preseason tournaments we might have two matches in one day so they have to think on their feet and Mm -hmm. keep thinking about all these different funny things like to get the entire team like riled up and ready to go but that's like one thing that we do I don't know if a lot of other teams do kind of rituals like that but I just think that I don't know I think it's fun and plus like it gets us it helps us learn more about the freshmen and helps the freshmen learn more about us and then obviously makes us all laugh so yeah. that's always a good thing too well it's really interesting because there's been many stories over the last few years about kind of rookie initiations or rituals gone wrong particularly in men's sports yeah, yeah and a lot of things that talk about kind of toxic masculinity right mm-hmm. or the idea that to haze a rookie you want them to put on a dress. Yeah. Something that's humiliating on these kind of very kind of toxic gender lines. Mm-hmm. And so I get the sense that that probably manifests differently in women's athletics. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think, yeah, I, I wouldn't assume that a lot of women athletics do things like that and women's sports do things like that. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's tough. I feel like being a guy and having to kind of like defend your masculinity and, and be hazed in different ways. And I think that, it is just, it, I think it's just a gender thing. Cause I don't think that women are kind of, I don't know how to describe it. I just, I just don't think that like we're like women are more inclined to haze. And even if they are, I suppose it's not as harsh as men might in, in sports and even in other things. Great. So is the diversity in volleyball an issue? Are there a lot? I know our team, we have a few women of color on the team. Do you see that on other teams? Or is it a sport that <laughs> it feels like there's still work to be done? Okay, so in club volleyball, I think it's hard. Just it, it depends on your geographical location. Like, I was the only black girl on my team for a while. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't until my last year of club volleyball that I ended up playing with more women of color. And coming here that's another reason why I chose Penn State to be completely honest was that I didn't want to be the only black girl on my team again (laughs) so I thought that was really cool and it was just it's just it's just a diff like something I've never experienced and I've want I've always wanted to experience and now being here and being able to say that like I've played with like I've played with black girls like (laughs) I think that's great right and not a lot of girls can say that and I just think that there is a lack of diversity but I do think that 
girls are like female athletes are attracted to being on the best team and I think that's why like I've been fortunate enough here yeah. to play with so many good African-American females and in obviously like non-people of color as well but I think that's one thing that really draws a lot of people and it's like oh I see other black girls succeeding at a high level and I want to be just like them and if we're in the like same age range and proximity like I can play with them and learn from them and be like a be a student underneath them and I think that's something that not a lot of girls can say regardless of what school they go to and I think that's something that is really cool about Penn State Volleyball for sure. That's great. So you mentioned playing as one of the only black girls on the team for many years. Are there difficulties in that? Are there things that you find particularly challenging when you're in those situations or do you form bonds with your teammates, you know, regardless? I mean, I guess it gets weird sometimes. (laughs) I mean, I feel like it's the whole like, why are you sleeping with the bonnet on your head? You're like, I don't know. Like, I don't want my hair to get messed up. Or like, you know, just it's like cultural things like that, which which it's going to happen. Right. But I mean, a lot of my teammates are cool. It's not like something, it's not something where I've ever felt isolated from a team or I've, I've felt that I don't belong or that like my coaches treat me differently or anything like that. I've never felt that way. But it's, it's just like the cultural things yeah. like hair stuff and Ebonics and just all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I've noticed, you know, this year there's been a lot of kind of renaissance of organized athletic activism. And I noticed from the high school ranks to the college ranks, it seems to be volleyball teams and volleyball players have been on the forefront of taking the knee. And so that's why I kind of asked you that question, because it seems like there's a lot of stories or a lot of teams in which there's a black volleyball player who's choosing to kind of act this way. And some teams have been very supportive and some teams, you know, seem to have an internal struggle over the tensions that that has kind of produced. So I think that managing a team and personal politics seems to be a juggling match. Is that yeah. something that you find to be true? I think so. I mean, we don't really talk about politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we don't really talk about politics on our team. And I think that I think that's a good thing. You know, I mean, I think that even if there are differences of opinions at the same time, like we're all teammates, we're all sisters, and we all got to respect each other's opinions, regardless of what they are. And I think that's something that might not happen in other places. And I mean, I do think it's great that so many volleyball players are taking a knee and, and actually protesting. And I think that's something that will continue. I mean, I mean, Colin Kaepernick was like GQ's and like personal like years, yeah. like that. Like that's incredible. And I think that's something that that people see and people admire. And I think that's something that will continue to happen regardless. Great. So talking about juggling it all, how is it being a student athlete? We talk a lot about the kind of perils of being a student athlete, especially on the men's side and the amount of practice time they have, and especially with those tournaments bringing millions of dollars to institutions and them not getting paid. What is it like to be a woman playing collegiate volleyball at one of the most competitive places? Do you find that it's hard to juggle? Do you find the same kind of conversations happening around compensation? Well, I mean, juggling, I've never thought it was a big issue, but partially I think it also depends on your major. I know my roommate is a biobehavioral health, so she's always in chemistry and organic chemistry and biology and anatomy and all those kind of classes. And I'm in the communications classes, so my focus of in area of ex- expertise is more on projects and videos and, and putting those kind of things together. And hers is like actually memorizing and studying and, and doing all that kind of stuff. So I think it... One, I think it depends on your major, but I, I also think that it's just time management skills. I mean, that's like the biggest thing, and especially when like younger girls ask, like, how do you do it? Like, what's going on? Like, I just think that time management is huge. And if you don't, if you don't know how to allocate your time correctly, then it's going to really kind of bite you in the butt later in life, especially 
in your later college years because that's when that's when you really got to start buckling down and you might not be taking as many classes but you are focusing on your like major and minor classes and so it's becoming less of a gen ed courses and more and more of something geared specifically toward what you want to do for the rest of your life how many hours a day do you spend like for practice so we practice like a typical week if we play on Wednesday and Saturday, we practice Monday and Tuesday for three hours. We have a game on Wednesday and then practice Tuesday, Thursday for three hours and the game on Saturday. And if it's a away game, obviously we'll leave. So we'll have a shorter practice that same game day. So if we, if we play on Wednesday, we'll have a shorter practice on Tuesday so we can get to wherever we're going faster. Yeah. I mean, I, I like our practice schedule and I think it's, it's good because we, we are so competitive. It's so always like, there's so many times at the end of practice, it'll be like, you go from three to six and it'll be six o'clock and we're like, okay, well we didn't win this last drill. So like, let's do another one. Like we're not going until we win something, you know? And so I think it's like the competitive nature in all of us that, that makes us want to push ourselves even more. And I think that coach does a really good job of being able to manage as we are going toward the end of the season, being able to help us knowing we need to rest rather than go hard. But I think that he expects us all the time to put in, put forth an effort regardless of what we're doing. It, it doesn't matter if we're doing individual work. It doesn't matter if we're doing team oriented skills and, and drills. I think that he's, he's always looking for effort. And I think that's something that we as a team strive for, regardless of what the day is or who the opponent is. It's, it's always about, making sure that we're going to put our best foot forward no matter what. And I think that that's something that a lot of teams don't, don't really do. It's a great reminder that, you know, women athletes are athletes and they're competitive mm-hmm. and they want to win. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> great. So what's next for you? What are your career goals? What happens to elite college volleyball players who are women? Is there professional leagues? Where are they located? There are professional leagues in Europe and Puerto Rico, Hawaii, basically any foreign country that you can think of, any major foreign country, I should say, that you could think of. There's probably a professional women's volleyball league in there. Volleyball is way bigger overseas than it is in the United States and that kind of hurts me a little bit because I love being here and around my family but at the same time it's like if I can continue living my dream and continue playing the sport that I love overseas like I, I'm going to want to do it and that's that's what I'm going to try to do hopefully past graduation I, I that's what I'm going to really strive for because I think it's one it is a very good source of income and two you get to live overseas and three you get to do what you love so I don't think that there's really a big downside to it and my mom's always told already told me like oh well I'll be coming with you so (laughs) (laughs) so she gets a free trip to wherever I'm going anyway so I just think that it's something that a lot of a lot of collegiate athletes do strive for and and they just want to continue living the dream. You know, this is something that not a lot of people get to do. And especially being able to say like, oh, post-graduation, like I don't have to go into the workforce right away. And and don't get me wrong, playing volleyball, this this is your job. And this is something that you will be paid for. But it's just different because like you always love the sport and you always get to do what you love every single day. Mm-hmm. And you don't really have to stress about like, oh, well, I didn't get this job and I have to apply for 50 more now. And you have to think about like okay well how am I going to get this rest for the yeah. next game and have a good practice you know it's so interesting to me because I, I write about a Olympian volleyball player Flo Hyman who was competing <laughs> in the 80s and one of the things that happens after they win silver medal in the Olympics is that there's no professional opportunities for women volleyball players in the United States so she also ends up playing overseas yeah. as do a lot of players and it seems like there's this kind of 
multiple decade long push to mm-hmm. bring professional athletics for women here because it's not just volleyball, it's basketball too. Absolutely. A lot of, you know, players leave the WNBA because they can get more yeah. abroad. And so yeah. do you find that there's any kind of internal push or internal discussion of professional leagues for women that are here in the state? I think so. I have read a few things from USA Volleyball and from and from different sources that have said that they've been trying to create like a league like a professional women's volleyball league here in the United States, it's just hard, you know? I mean, so many women already go overseas and have been playing overseas for so long that either A, it's the end of their career, or B, they're like, why would I leave, like, my loyal team, my loyal coaches, like, this loyal fan base that I have, like, let's say they're in France or something like that, why would I leave that to come back to the United States for a league that might not come into fruition? And I think that's something that is big. And I, of course, would love to have a league in the United States, but it's also about having the right, like a specific amount of teens, having enough girls who are interested in staying here to play professionally and having it be competitive enough to say that we can compete with other teams like across the country and then being able to play those teams across the country, you know, because it'd be a a tough travel day flying from the United States to Italy every other week, you know, And, and, and just being able to find yeah, finding enough teams and enough women who are interested here to want to play instead of having to kind of go back and forth. So I think that I think it's possible. I just think it's it's it is tough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you have three more matches before the bracket is announced and then the tournament, the postseason tournament opens December 1st. So best of luck to you that. And also Simone is a finalist for the Senior Class Award, which stands for Celebrating Loyalty and Achievement for Staying in School. It focuses on the total student athlete and encourages students to use their platform in athletics to make a positive impact as leaders in their community. To be eligible for the award, you have to be classified as an NCAA Division One senior and have notable achievements in four areas of excellence community classroom character and competition that is great to be a finalist along with your teammate Haley Washington congratulations to you and best of luck thank thanks you. for chatting with thank us thank you so much I think now we need to pivot to a less upbeat topic but one that's pretty important as the football season winds down the plight of the black quarterback. After years of stereotypes about black athletes pushed many young players away from seeking the quarterback position, and since the first premiered in the late 1960s, we've had a few cohorts of black quarterbacks, but the shroud of racism hasn't been lifted. Lindsay, you've written a lot about this. How would you characterize the situation right now? (laughs) Well, this week, not very great. I I mean, there's look, there's undeniably been some progress. But this week in the news was the benching of Tyrod Taylor on the Buffalo Bills. So the Buffalo Bills are kind of in the middle of the playoff race. They're five and four. They start off the season really well, have come back to earth a little bit. Nobody thinks they're going to win the Super Bowl. They're not this elite team, but they are in the thick of making the playoffs, which would be a big deal for the Bills who do not make the playoffs very often. Tyrod Taylor has been their starting quarterback. He's completed 64% of his passes, 10 touchdowns, three interceptions, run for 237 yards, and two touchdowns. Those aren't stats that are going to get him in the MVP conversation, but they're very, very solid statistics. Well, this week, it was announced kind of out of nowhere, took seemingly everyone, including Buffalo Bills players, by surprise when he was benched for Nathan Peterman, I believe, who was a quarterback I'd honestly never heard of. He is a fifth-round 
rookie out of, I believe, Pitt. (laughs) And it's just kind of this bizarre thing where it's hard not to look at the racial elements of this, both the stereotypes that we put black quarterbacks on as far as their mobility and the intellectual stereotypes we put on them as far as, you know, them not being intelligent enough for the position or to adapt. And also just this this seemingly the Bills never saw Tyrod Taylor as their franchise quarterback. They were never willing to adapt their offense to his particular strengths. They just wanted him to be able to adapt to what they wanted to do. And look, this is Tyrod Taylor is he's not is a Cam Newton, right? He's not an obvious you're going to be, you know, you could be one of the greatest quarterbacks to play the game. But he is certainly a lot better than a lot of players. And it just seems like he's been set up to fail in Buffalo, a town that seemingly never really wanted him. A lot of people in Buffalo compared him consistently to EJ Manuel, who was another black quarterback who the Bills used to have. But Emmanuel and Tyra Taylor don't really have much in common about their games. Manuel is nowhere near as good as Tyra Taylor. And look, it was just very frustrating to see this. And, you know, it is one of those things where Tyrod isn't, like I said, he isn't that good that you can automatically put this down as, well, this is undeniably, you know, because he's black. But I think when you, you you can't take it out of a historical context and wonder like how his race played into this decision. So I just, I just want to talk about it a little bit. Amira, do you have anything? Yeah, precisely. I think that there's such a long history here, as you mentioned. This is born out of scientific racism, out of a logic that says that Black people are more athletic, right, because of the size of their femurs, right? It's a natural-born athletic ability, but it's not intelligence. And this is how we get such coded language that permeates our commentary. You know, you flip on any sport today, and you're going to find vestiges of this. If you're kind of white, you're scrappy, you're in the gym, we hear copious amounts about your work athletic. Tom Brady's TB, whatever this scheme is, you know, gets full profiles. Whereas, you know, if you're a black quarterback, it's chopped up to your natural ability, quote unquote, natural ability. And that's, that's a very coded phrase. And I think that that then goes into how we've kind of understood black quarterbacks to be mobile, been surprised at their pocket presence, or their ability to throw a pass down the field. And it also contributes to the shorter leash that they get when it comes to playing ability and slumps and disposability of their bodies. And I think you can relate this not only to this recent benching of Taylor, but also to Kaepernick. You can relate it to Michael Vick. There's a long thread here about the kind of prominence, invisibility, and disposability of Black quarterbacks. But I also think that it's really interesting when we talk about the history of Black quarterbacks that we erase a lot of the best Black quarterbacks there were because we don't look at Black college football. And I say this because in a time where, you know, the idea was that you had to be converted from your position at quarterback to a wide out or to something that would better utilize your quote unquote natural speed or agility. A lot of the best recruits from black college football who were playing quarterback there were brought into the NFL and disseminated into other positions. So sometimes we don't even know where these people with great arms and and tremendous ability ended up. But at the mid-century, the 
biggest core of talent that we saw in so many areas were in black colleges, particularly on the football pitch. You can look to 1967 and see the meeting between Tennessee State and Grambling, who were teams that were both completely powerhouses in football, led by court black quarterbacks who were spreading the offense out and throwing for, you know, upwards of 200, 300 yards a game. And I think that that's particularly it's a particular history that when we read it into our current knowledge really disrupts this kind of the, the idea about the longevity and the longer history of black quarterbacks. Yeah. (laughs) Does anyone want to talk about, have you guys seen that article by Chuck Modiano on the, the great white hope between Ryan Fitzpatrick and Josh McCowan (laughs) that kind of analyzes their stats? Did you guys read that? Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. We're going to link to it in the show notes, but the stats are unreal. So the flip side of that neglect of black quarterbacks is the adulation of mediocre white quarterbacks. And mediocre at best. Mediocre at best. <laughs> yes. Okay. Mediocre that's generous. might be generous. That's, yeah. It's very generous. This is Thanksgiving. <laughs> and and Modiano, Modiano like does this great job analyzing the difference between Alex Smith and Vince Young and their stats. And it's it's just mind-boggling to me. How it works because people have this argument in sports that it's so obvious that talent wins the day. And yes, of course, sometimes it can. But if you look at these stats and you look at Kaepernick and you look at these people that they've allowed to have terrible seasons, I mean, Eli Manning, okay, Super Bowl quarterback. (laughs) I know, I know, but that's the closest you could get to justification, right? Colin Kaepernick, also Super Bowl quarterback, by the way. But, you know, it's just amazing. And can anyone say Tim Tebow? I mean, they would resuscitate that man to play any sport, any time. I mean, look look at some of these quarterback matchups we have this year, this week in the NFL. It is – they both have nine lives and the longest leash like any person has ever been (laughs) given. I mean, you've got Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Jay Cutler. You have Tom Savage versus Blaine Gabbert. You have Brock Osweiler versus Andy Dalton. I mean, these are just like, just time and time again, we just see them getting these leashes and these chances. And there's, you know, there's just something about them. Well, I wonder wonder what that could be what do you think you know yeah because jay cutler's had losing season since 2013 yeah and nobody right? like, like his and teammates six, don't like him he's not a good like locker room presence he doesn't work hard like there's no justification for it except that he is white like quarterbacks have traditionally been and you know it's really depressing i did a an interview with Marlon Briscoe or kind of a profile of him and the the history of black quarterbacks in the NFL. I wrote this right before at the beginning of 2016, right before Cam Newton played in the Super Bowl. And I had always known, of course, that, you know, there that there had been this historical limiting of options for black quarterbacks, but it, it really put it into into sharp focus for me. I mean, Briscoe was the first black quarterback to start a game in the NFL. So before him, there had been one quarterback who had taken snaps in an NFL game. But Briscoe was the first quarterback to start a game. But listen to how he got into the league. Like he, so this was in, I believe, 1968. I need to look 
that up and I will find that right as I am talking. <laughs> yeah, it's 68. It's 68. Okay, thank you. Sure. Thank you. Okay. But yeah, so Briscoe was a star quarterback in college. And then in the NFL, he was drafted in the 14th round. This is when they had very extremely long drafts as a defensive back. (laughs) And he was drafted to the Broncos and the Broncos told him, he told the Broncos, he was very bold. And he said, I will play cornerback for you, but you have to give me a tryout at quarterback. And the thing was, was Denver at this time had open tryouts. So the public could see their practices and tryouts. And he was really good. And he only had a very limited time to do this. But one of the Denver Post columnists wrote about how good he was. And he still didn't get the starting position, but he actually got injured during preseason that year. And when he came back after a few weeks, the starting quarterback had injured himself. So when he got back to his locker after being injured a few weeks, he came back and the quarterback jersey would like he got his number in his locker was a quarterback number. So he was named the backup quarterback in that game this, that he went into as a backup quarterback without barely any preparation. The starting quarterback struggled so much that they ended up putting him in as the uh, the quarterback. He almost led them back to victory that game and then was given the opportunity to start the following game. And that's when he really made history. After that one season, which was pretty successful for him, he finished out the rest of the season. He was cut from the team unceremoniously, completely left out of all quarterback discussions and ended up going to, I believe, the Bills as a wide receiver (laughs) and never had a chance to play quarterback again, you know, and it's just... This is what used to happen. You know, this is this happened time and time again. And I mean, 1960, that's not that long ago. You know, we're not even, you know, we're just a few decades removed from that. And you see it happening, not to quite as obvious as a degree still. And obviously, there are success stories. But it's the same mentality. It's the same mentality. And it also goes into other things. So if you remember the conversation around how many flags were thrown around the league versus how many calls Cam Newton could get for roughing the passer. I mean, he was getting absolutely Uh, leveled, right? And this goes into that, this idea that, oh, he's tougher because he's mobile, right? This, This is where that idea of mobility comes in. And mobility becomes a coded word as used in this way to say that they're not true quarterbacks, right? They're mobile quarterbacks. They're people who happen to be able to throw the ball, but really we just know that they are going to run because they're just fast. They're just athletes, right? And I think that that, you know, you see the legacy of that and you see the kind of language around that manifest in different ways. And I think really ultimately what you have with black quarterbacks is the embodiment of the old adage in black communities that you have to be twice as good to get half as much. And unfortunately, it seems like that is something that, remains true today. Yeah. And, and, you know, you saw Deshaun Watson talk about this even before he was drafted into the NFL about how people only use the phrase dual threat quarterback (laughs) for black quarterbacks. You know, you don't hear Uh, people talk about Aaron Rodgers like that, even though Aaron Mm -hmm. Rodgers mobility is like a huge strength, right, of his. And, you know, it's hard. You look at the draft and you see examples of this, too. I mean, Look how far Deshaun Watson fell in the draft. And now he's go- he looks like he's going to be the face of the NFL for years to come. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he got injured, you know, with the Houston Texans. He got injured in practice towards ACL and is out for the year. But 
multiple teams who really need a quarterback passed by him. And you saw the same questions. Is he a leader? Is he, you know, is his mobility to hit a weakness? You know, does he have the pocket presence? You know, you see that time and time again. And, and it's hard for me. I haven't studied really the the draft notes on Dak Prescott, but he fell a couple of rounds, you know, and you just see time and time again, these stereotypes hurting these quarterbacks. But what ultimately they end up doing also is hurting the teams themselves who don't won't look past these stereotypes and, you know, dig a little deeper. So it's just karma. It's frustrating. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Karma. That is you deserve it. You deserve to lose for that. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment where we throw all the things we've hated about sports during the week and set them aflame. Lindsay? I'd like to talk just briefly about the WNBA draft lottery that ESPN held the other day. It was a one-minute segment that was thrushed into their ESPN6 Sports Center with Mike Smith. It looked like they had given Mike Smith no heads up that this was happening <laughs> in the middle of his segment. The draft lottery, in case you don't know, is when they they figure out their there's a machine with balls and numbers in it and they pick them out to figure out which team are going to pick first in the draft. So it's a big deal. And, you know, they're weighted chances for each team based on record and everything. But the production of this was one of the most pitiful things I had ever ever seen for the network that actually has rights to (laughs) the WNBA games and is supposed to be a partner for the league and that, you know, saw lots of gains this year in viewership for the WNBA. It was shoehorned, as I said, into SportsCenter. It was, we didn't even get to see the picking of the balls. Mike Smith made his own drum roll noise, which as I noticed on Twitter is only charming when (laughs) we do it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And then there was an interview with the, there were the three coaches who had the opportunity, whose teams might have been picked to go first. We only saw that the first pick went to Vegas, the new team in Vegas. Mike Smith did a about 20 second interview with head coach Bill Lembier. That was, it was just, I love Mike Smith, but this was just an awful interview. And then the segment went away. We didn't even find out who got the second and the third and fourth picks. It was just gone. Like that was it. And it was, it was so pitiful and it was so disappointing. This happened the same week that James Dolan decided he's going to sell the New York Liberty. Nobody knows about the future of the New York Liberty. And in the press release, the only person that James Dolan thanked was Isaiah Thomas, oh not God. Tina Charles, not any of the women Jesus. in his team. Isaiah Thomas, the president of the New York Liberty, who FYI also used to work for the Knicks, but you know, because of sexual harassment, got fired from that job, I believe. Mm. So lots of fun things to just remind us that women's pro basketball, even though the WNBA does get coverage and, you know, is is ahead of other leagues, there's a long way to go, friends. And I would like to throw both James Dolan's statement and ESPN's draft into the burn pile. Burn it. Speaking of shady management, I'm going to burn FC Kansas City. The two-time NWSL champion is collapsing. And it's really a shame, not only because Kansas City is a great sports town, but because of the way in which it folded, leaving players and fans in utter confusion. First, there was talk that Sporting Casey, the men's club, might take it over, 
We've seen those partnerships work well in the past. We've spoken about that in our soccer segment recently, but they just weren't interested enough. And it seems now that many of the players will be moved to Salt Lake City. So instead of FC Kansas City, the 10th team in the league will be Real Salt Lake. So it's pretty murky. The whole thing has been confusing. There's been rumors. It's, you know, things have appeared on Twitter in statements that are like very obscure. So I want to burn the rumor mill that players' lives get caught up in. And I want to burn the lack of interest in keeping the team in Kansas City. And I want to burn the lack of transparency and organization involved. Altogether, I I want a slow mega burn of the debacle that is FC Kansas City. Burn. Burn. That was my slow burn. You didn't, it was, it didn't work. Yeah, okay. Burn. I didn't look for it anyways. <laughs> I like it. I just thought I you were a little it. sleepy, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like the slow burn. I want the Trying mega slow burn. build the burn. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll okay, work on it. We'll Amira. work on it. Yeah, well, it really pains me to do this, but I really need to burn Gabby Douglas's recent comments on Twitter in response to Ali Raisman's call for people to stop victim shaming. Raisman, of course, who's spoken out about this and added to one of the many Me Too voices in sports, posted a piece talking, saying, quote, women are allowed to feel sexy and comfortable in their own sins. I encourage you to wear what you feel good in. I will not put up with any woman or girl being shamed for wanting to wear a skirt, dress, etc. I do not tolerate. Are we clear? One more thing. Stop victim shaming. It's because of you so many survivors live in fear. In response to these heartfelt words that is reminding everybody that it doesn't matter what you wear, doesn't matter how you act, the onus is not on you, it's on the perpetrator, former teammate Gabby Douglas responded by saying, however, it is our responsibility as women to dress modestly and be classy. Dressing in a provocative sexual way entices the wrong crowd. And it's just so frustrating to literally see a response to say no victim shaming doing just that but also to have somebody like Gabby who so many people have rooted for or helped navigate or supported when she has been a kind of victim of kind of racist and sexist memes and spotlights and hair politics and all this stuff to not kind of have a awareness right about representation or about what it means about sexual assault in this way and luckily she has teammates who gather her up and Simone Biles immediately retweeted and says I'm shocked but not surprised to see this honestly this brings me to tears because I expect more from you and I expect you to support her I support you Allie and other women out there stay strong so that for me was really important to see. And I hope that Gabby has some folks in her life that will help her understand just how dangerous and harmful those sentiments are. To reiterate once and for all, if somebody is walking down the street buck naked, I do not care. It does not give anybody the right to put their hands on them or assault them. So I have to burn it down. Burn Burn it. Okay, after all that burning, we're going to move on to celebrate some wonderful badass women. This week, our honorable mentions include race car driver Danica Patrick, who announced she will retire after the 2018 Indy 500. Congrats to Burn It All Down ambassador Serena Williams and former guest Laisha Clarendon on their weddings. 
for the first time ever, Nigeria will be represented, as we mentioned earlier in the show, in the 2018 Winter Olympic Games after the bobsled team, the women's bobsled team, qualified. And can I get a charming DIY drum roll, please? Oh, that's a good, that's a good, I like that. I don't know if it's a mood we're going for, but sure. (laughs) (laughs) The winner is Phaedra Knight, only the second U.S. player to be inducted into the Rugby Hall of Fame. Phaedra is also a graduate from University of Wisconsin Law School. If you can, I know, look at her go. And she played with USA Rugby Team for 12 years, 99 to 2013. She's recognized as one of the best players in the world who played two different positions, prop and flanker. She made three World Cup appearances with USA Women's Rugby Team in 2002, 2006, and 2010. And when speaking about her identities... Knight said, quote, I take tremendous pride in all the characteristics I represent, being an African-American, being a woman, being a lesbian, end of quote. So both for representing and for being a badass rugby player, congratulations, Phaedra Knight, you are Burn It All Down's Badass Woman of the Week. Last but not least, in the midst of the dark hours that are 2017, let's talk about what we're looking forward to. Amira. Yes, I am looking forward to grandparents who watch your children for you. I am in (laughs) Texas, and despite the colonialist and genocidal roots of the upcoming holiday, I am very excited to have a week off around family and with good food. And I also have to sneak in a mini burn towards the NFL for literally having the Washington football team (laughs) hosting a Thanksgiving team, because what the hell? But yes. despite that, I am looking forward to this upcoming week, and I'm very, very ready to be semi-kid free. Lindsay. Yeah, I, I must say I have decided to drive down to North Carolina for Thanksgiving. I wasn't sure if I was going to make the trip, but I just love turkey so much and my family, of course. So <laughs> I'm really excited for that this week. And I also, I got to say, I rode a bike for the first time in like 20 years yesterday. <laughs> And I've been trying to like, I've been telling myself for like a year now that I was going to like relearn how to bike and be able to bike to work and stuff like that. And biking in the city still terrifies me. And I'm, I mean, I could barely like I was on it for like five minutes and like I'm shocked I didn't die. So I've got a long way to go. But yesterday was a start. So, you know, watch out, everyone. (laughs) And literally, if you see me, watch out for me like on a bike, like literally watch out. (laughs) It's Thanksgiving, as we've stated during this segment, and I am grateful for all the usual stuff, my family, my health, my friends, my kids, but a delightful bit of gratitude I owe to my Burn It All Down co-hosts who help me feel sane and give me space to creatively rant every single week. And to those of you who have encouraged us, you listeners who egg us on and make us feel better. That's it for this week at Burn It All Down. It lives on SoundCloud, but we can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate to let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down and on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. 
and check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com. We'd like to thank Hofstra University for its support of the podcast. Go Pride! For Lindsay Gibbs, Amira Rose Davis, and myself, Brenda Elsie, thanks for joining us and have the best possible week. Can we sing happy birthday to Jess? And a very, very (laughs) happy birthday shout out to our wonderful co-host, Jessica Luther. Happy birthday! We love you, Jess. We love you. Happy birthday. I guess that's a no on the singing then. Well, I'm tone deaf, so nobody wants to hear that. (laughs) I sang the last episode. (laughs) My birthday gift to you, Jess, will be not singing. Exactly. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Okay. Bye for now. Hey, hey,